Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we explore famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Spars, here with my personal baggage. <laughs> John Stricker. <laughs> And we're back this week um, to talk a little bit um, more modern. We've been dated for a little bit with Percy and Mary Shelley and um, Louisa May Alcott, but we're going to jump up to one of our modernism writers and discuss with you author of, in my opinion, his best work, The Crucible, but according to literally everyone else in the world, including the Pulitzer Prize Committee, Death of a Salesman, (laughs) Arthur Miller. (laughs) Yay! Yay! Arthur Miller! <laughs> Just kidding. He's weird. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why we're doing him. But like in a J.D. Salinger kind of weird. Oh. Like things where you're like, bro, did we? Did but we why? need to? Why mm. did you do that? Mm. Um, he did that. So thank you so much to um, Topher, Heather, Brett, and Patrick for helping me um, pick this and making the suggestion. Um, a lot of our recent episodes have been because of you guys, because of the authors that you've suggested that we do. So um, please know that we take those to heart and we try to cover um, all of the ones that you suggest. We're still catching up with some of the ones that were left on Instagram. Um, so we'll definitely get to those in the coming weeks, which is exciting. Um, But this one comes from them, and I hope you guys like it. We wanted to promote a few things before we get started, Um, one of which is the excitement on our very Dickens Christmas. John has volunteered today to do something special for that episode, so I'm excited to see it. I am too. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, but we will definitely be having um, a delightful time recounting his stories and then whatever John would like to bring to the table. It's going to be thrilling. Great. Let me tell you now. Okay. You, you don't have to tell me. You just have to prove it to the audience. I know. There, you, you you definitely backed me into a corner here, Stephanie. So. You're the one who is literally like, I will do something for it. I know, and I'm excited about it. But now we've hyped it. You've hyped it. I just I said th- it was a secret. Oh. <laughs> you just said it was amazing or something like that. <laughs> so I think it's your fault. I'm sticking with it. It's going to be great. All right. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> We're also planning um, an outing to go see Little Women in theaters um, on Sunday, December 29th. So specific time is TBD. But if you're interested in coming to see that with us, we'd love to get a group together. Um, So it'll be likely in the western suburbs of Chicago. Um, We'll try to go find a movie theater based on who um, says they're interested is nearby them and uh, try to coordinate a time that works for the most people. So if that's something that you're interested in, please reach out, let us know. Um, Either on social media, shoot me a text or email or something like that, and we'll see if we can get a group together. But I'm really excited about it. Yes, for sure. (laughs) John is still planning to lead the talk back, no? Yeah, I'm leading the talk back with my expert knowledge of Little Women and Louisa May Alcott. Excellent. All learned from you during our episode two weeks ago. John might actually listen to an episode. I don't need to. I was there for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean to like recall the information. Oh, absolutely. I listen all the time <laughs> to old ones. I don't always like listen to it when it first comes out. It's mm-hmm. Wednesdays. Right. Mm-hmm. It comes out on Thursday. It does? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was very confused. <laughs> I got you there for a second. For sure. <laughs> um, amazing. So with that being said, um, let's go ahead and turn our attention to witches, a.k.a. McCarthyism extraordinaire, <laughs> Arthur Miller. 
Arthur Miller was born on October 17th, 1915 in Harlem, New York. I'm so excited that this can come back. Um, making him a Libra. And um, 1915, incidentally enough, was the same year that the Provincetown Players started their work. So in my book, it's a very important year in history. Oh. Arthur was second of three children. Um, his parents, his father, um, Isidore, actually was an immigrant from Poland, um, and he owned a very successful women's coat manufacturing business hmm. um, that actually at one point um, employed over, I think it's about 500 employees, so like very, very large. That's impressive. Um, and his mother, Augusta, who was, who was born in the United States, um, was an educator. So shout out Augusta. She was also an avid reader and lover of literature, um, which probably prompted a lot of Arthur's upbringing and imaginative storytelling that would come along later. Um, unfortunately, in 1929, um, the Millers lost everything in the Wall Street crash. Oh, um, so much so that they had to move from Manhattan to Brooklyn. Yikes. Woof. Flatbush, to be specific. Um, I just thought that kind of like detail was really funny because now it doesn't really matter where in New York you're moving. It's just expensive everywhere. Right, but then it was more... <laughs> It was like, oh, you're moving to Brooklyn? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll never see you again. Yeah. Um, although, according to my friends who live in New York, if you live in Brooklyn, you really don't see anybody from Manhattan because you have to take the train over the... the um, Hudson? Yeah. Or is it... Is it Hudson? I don't know. Is it Washington? I don't know. We'll consult a map for the bodies of water that are surrounding. There is a body of water between Manhattan and Brooklyn. You must cross it, and that is why they never see each other. <laughs> Perfect summary. <laughs> um, so uh, throughout his upbringing, um, Arthur Miller tried to work to help sustain his family. Um, he worked delivering bread, which like sounds like a dream, but I'd probably get in a lot of trouble for having that job because I would not deliver the bread. I don't know where it went. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I got... Mugged. I got <laughs> it. Got stole. All, all they left were these crumbs on my hands and face. <laughs> um, so he graduates from high school and then works a couple different odd jobs to save money, um, and then enrolls in the University of Michigan and studies uh, writing. And he participates. He writes for the school newspaper, um, and he completes his first play titled "No Villain," uh, which actually wins the Avery Hopwood Award at the school. Um, so clearly doing really well in those fields uh, of writing uh, and pursuing his literary path. It's so interesting how many of the authors that we talk about mm -hmm. don't just write literature, right? They, mm -hmm. they have some type of journalism or, or research that they Creative do. Creative yeah. writing element. It's something yeah. about just communication in general, mm -hmm. I feel like, that uh, leads them to write this. The work that they do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it also makes them a little bit more creative with their language mm -hmm. and thinking about it coming from many different places instead of just one. And clarity, right? Like, mm -hmm. especially journalism. Mm -hmm. um, so he graduates um, and then he for a while serves as a psychiatric aide and a copywriter before he accepts a faculty post at NYU and New Hampshire University. Which is sort of frustrating to me that you could literally graduate with an undergrad degree. Like, he literally just had a bachelor's. And he went on and became a college professor. Wow. Isn't that so? Like, in New Hampshire? 
I guess. Um, I don't know. I'm not quite sure if he split time there or just taught kind of at both around the same time or something. But either way, <laughs> that's not fair. No. I'm thinking of what I know of the um, academic job market or lack there of a job market. Um, so shout out to anybody who's in that track right now trying to find a job. I wish you all the best of luck. Sure. I know that it's exceptionally difficult. So you can just hold that against Arthur Miller if you want to make yourself feel better. Um, because he literally just had one degree and went on and did it. Almost as much as what you held against Dr. Seuss for not being a real doctor. Yeah, but he was. there were also a lot of other things. Well, for sure. But you specifically pinpointed that. <laughs> yeah, it just, it seemed like he was hiding. You know, like, <laughs> that's not who you are. There's so many people who work so much harder than you. He wrote children's books. Yeah, so? Are we encouraging our children not to lie? Well, they didn't know he was lying. Right, that's the problem. That might be worse. Anyway. <laughs> Moving on. Um, so he is exempt from military service, right? This is right around the time that we'd be hitting World War II um, because he got an injury to his left knee in high school um, that prevented him from going into the military. So mm -hmm. he stayed out of the service for that reason. Um, just around the end of the war, he actually had his first Broadway debut of a play called The Man Who Had All the Luck which was the opposite of what he would be for this debut round. Mm. Um, it, it closed after four performances, <gasps> and all the reviews panned it. It did not do very well at all. Mm. Um, he then later went on to publish Focus, which was a novel, not a play, um, about anti-Semitism. And that also gets published later in 1944. So kind of a rough start to his writing career. Um, but then, two years, or three years later, in 1947, he publishes this little play called All My Sons, and this runs um, for almost a full year on Broadway and wins him his first Tony Award. So he's starting to kind of write hits, and a lot of the that work... That's a fast turnaround. Um, yeah, I would say like so. Like four but years? Three or four years is still like a long time. I guess. Think about like working on an engineering project for that long. Yeah. You know, or like. Or teaching. Like the I same think about teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like a text mm. you know, for that long. That's like really sustained inquiry. So not that he was writing those things the whole time, mm -hmm. but still to kind of. A lot have, of growth in four yeah, years. Four years to work on that. So, um, he builds a small studio in Roxbury, Connecticut. Um, and while he's kind of writing and working out there, he writes the first act of this new idea that he has, Death of a Salesman, in less than a day. So he sits down at this little thing. Um, and then the play in 1949, so this is two years later, opens on February 10th. It's directed by Elia Kazan um, and opens. And That's a big deal, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. There's some more controversy about mm. him later. So okay. don't worry, he'll come back. Um, and everyone loves it. It's getting rave reviews. I think it really... So if you're thinking 1949, right, we're really talking about the explosion post-war of the American dream and people trying to navigate now what culture and life is like after a second world war. We thought we were done with the Great War, but then we weren't and we had another one. 
Um, we finished World War II, and now what do we do with our life, with everything that we're trying to construct? With and, leisure, a growing yeah, middle class. Like... That's what Death of a Salesman is addressing. Mm. Um, a lot of Arthur Miller's plays um, and works that he wrote really kind of focus on class tensions, um, a lot of very male-centered work um, that also have to deal with political issues, socioeconomic status, and, and the difficulties of money, which obviously I think harken back to his growing up, having come from everything and then lost it, um, or his family really lost it, that mm -hmm. this is something that he feels very comfortable navigating in a play. So um, Death of a Salesman goes on and uh, it wins the Pulitzer Prize, the New York Drama Critics Circle Award, and another Tony. Um, it actually gets nominated for six Tony Awards and wins all of them, so including Best Author and Best Direction. Wow. So it does fine. It's fine. <laughs> People are kind of okay with it. There's like moderate success. Yeah, he does fine. So yeah, after winning a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Um, in 1956, so this is, what, um, seven years later or so, um, Miller has gotten married to Mary Slattery, who was his former college sweetheart. So after they graduated, they eventually got married and had two children, Jane Ellen and Robert. And then in 56, they wind up getting divorced. Less than a month later, Arthur Miller marries none other than Marilyn Monroe. Whoa. <laughs> so, quick turnaround there. Yeah. <laughs> Couple weeks. Um, literally married, like not even started dating. Just they literally got married. Married. So like divorced, like three weeks later, let's get married. New woman. Um, they had met in 51. So about five years prior to that at a Hollywood party. Um, <laughs> during this time, Marilyn Monroe was dating Elia Kazan, who had also directed All My Sons and Death of a Salesman. Oh right. And so Kazan is dating another actress and asks Miller to keep Monroe company. And then they stri strike up Monroe and Miller, this conversation that winds up evolving into a romance and then later their marriage. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, author Norman Mailer, who's actually another author that is a product or influence of Provincetown, not the Provincetown players, but Provincetown the place, mm. um, writes and calls their marriage the union of the great American brain and the great American body. <laughs> not even beauty, just body. body. Yeah. Um, so I don't really know how I feel about that <laughs> remark, but it made me laugh. So yeah, um, a little disparaging. Oh, yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. um, so the marriage is obviously very high profile because Marilyn Monroe is really um, like at really peak height of her fame at this point. Um, and Hollywood kind of starts to pay attention to him. So um, when they got married, Arthur Miller told the press that Marilyn Monroe would kind of curtail her movie career because she was now his wife. Oh. Which, like, is gross. Like, How'd that work stab. out? Well, I mean, anywho. <laughs> so in 1956, um, which is just, like, right around again the same time that he's getting divorced and remarried, um, the first trial that they, this couple faces is that the House on Un-American Activities Committee, the HULAC, <laughs> refuses to renew Miller's passport, and they call him to appear... Um, before a committee. Mm. And this is, again, when McCarthyism, the scare and fear of communism in the United States, really starts to bubble up. Because it's a again, hysteria. 
Yes. Yeah. Mm, that's coming up later. Um, so I think that that's really interesting because um, I just think of all the things that politically speaking are occurring now um, and people are writing all different kinds of things like that, but they're not getting called before committees to testify as to the things that they wrote. You know, those are things that in the news I'm reading about is occurring in places like Turkey and Syria and stuff like that. Right. Um, but this is happening, you know, in the 1950s in the United States. It serves, I think, as like a, a good marker for how far we've come with our protection for speech. Mm -hmm. Free speech. Yeah. I think so. Um, I don't know much about communism to begin with and in it as a political current throughout the world. Um, but I just know that this is occurring and they were accusing him of being a communist. Um, so the reason that he got called before this committee was because in 1953, three years prior to this, he he writes another play that also wins another Tony Award called My Most Favorite Thing Ever, The Crucible, hmm. um, which is a dramatization of the Salem Witch Trials in 1692, but also doubles as an allegory for McCarthyism. And so this is one of the reasons why they believe that like he was called up to testify was because he wrote this like controversial work, this idea that it's not really about Salem and witches. It's actually about McCarthyism and hysteria that's mm. sweeping the country. I do not care about that as much as I am fascinated by the Salem witch trials and witches. <laughs> so I'm going to focus on that. Is um, it because it is your name and, and you and have, have no, no other... Um, yes, I'm, we will post and I'm going to see if I can figure this out. But there's a very funny um, TikTok that one of my students showed me that's circulating around right now that basically involves like this cute little old grandmother. Like they're sitting around like a family is sitting around a kitchen table or whatever. And somebody's recording this grandmother and they're like, like, mom, what do you want to come back as? And she goes, a witch. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and then the mom goes like, what? Don't you want to be an angel? And she goes, no. <laughs> really funny. And they're like, mom, we're like, why? And she's like, so I can put a spell on you. It's so funny. <laughs> so I'll see if I can find that. Um, shout out. Thank you, Alyssa, for sending that to me. That's she funny. understands how much I love the Crucible and love Salem and love witchcraft. And that was very much appreciated. 2016 <laughs> also had a good uh, Crucible uh, newsworthy event because they published mm -hmm. when Ted Cruz was in the Crucible. And it is one of the best things I've ever Wait, seen. Wait, I don't know what that is. Okay, we got to look up something okay. after this. We will share the links to various Crucible related parodies. Ted I Cruz think is John Proctor. Of course he was. In college. <laughs> this is real. Horrible. Um, <laughs> I would not pay money to see that. You could not pay me money to see Ted Cruz do that. Um, I think this would, we would also be remiss if we did not shout out SNL's Crucible cast party. Um, oh my god, wait. You have seen that. No. Okay. We have so much Crucible, like, <laughs> It's really late when we're recording this, but, like, we now are going to take a totally separate... For sure, we're vacation. not sleeping. No, all we're crucible watching crucible-themed videos. videos for the rest of the night. <laughs> um, so anyway, at this testimony, at his, his committee hearing, um, Miller does not comply with the demands to out people who were active in his political spheres, right? So everyone, especially in Hollywood, was coming under scrutiny because they thought all these secret societies were existing, which honestly wouldn't surprise me if they were. But um, he would not 
kind of come like come out with the names names. he wouldn't name names Mm -hmm. um and so he was cited in contempt of congress and eventually um those charges would be dropped um two years later the contempt ruling would be overturned two years later um but i thought that this was sort of interesting um in 57 so right again uh right after he's getting called up for the the hearing uh brooks atkinson writes about Miller's stand and he says he refused he being Miller refused to be an informer he refused to turn his private conscience over to administration by the state he has accordingly been found in contempt of congress that is the measure of the man who has written these high minded plays hmm. so I thought that was sort of interesting um, that again this art is speaking directly in context to what's going on politically at the time um, on many different levels so, and isn't all art at some level? Yes, 100%. Um, so this gets overturned, whatever. Um, Miller and Monroe, Marilyn's back, don't worry, were married for five years. Um, and during this time, Marilyn was really struggling with personal troubles and drug addiction and issues with her career. Um, and during this time, Arthur Miller didn't really write uh, he writes a screenplay for the of a film called The Misfits as a present for her, <laughs> so that's nice. Yeah. Um, and in 1961, John Huston directed it, and it stars Marilyn Monroe, Clark Gable, and Montgomery Clift. Um, but around the same time as the release, uh, Miller and Monroe actually get divorced, and Monroe dies the following year. Um, in 1964. Miller writes after the fall, which was believed to be partially inspired by their relationship. Mm. Um, and people really criticized him because they thought he was capitalizing on his marriage to Monroe right after she died. But mm. he denies that that's the case. Um, knowing the subject material of his other plays, I don't, I mean, it doesn't seem that unlikely that it could literally have been about anything in his life like think about how many times he fell you know yeah. in his life kind of thing um so in 1962 um right at like literally the same year um miller marries a, a photographer from austria named inga morath and they have two more children rebecca and daniel and um Unfortunately, this is kind of hard. Um, Daniel was born with Down syndrome, mm. and Miller insisted that he be excluded from the family's life, which at the time was not uncommon. I think, like, obviously, most significantly of like the Kennedys and that whole scandal with Rosemary Kennedy. You don't? I've never heard of this. Oh, oh my gosh! I feel like. We're oh wait, just... wait, wait, wait! Rosemary About... Kennedy and her struggle with mental health. Right, and how oh, they like okay. shut yes, her. Yes, She's yes, like the yes, rejected yes. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Okay. Not great, but great. I thought that there was like a child with Down syndrome in this story, like with the Kennedys. But oh, now no. I understand. You're no, just saying just how mental like, health and developmental disability was handled. Totally neglected. Yes. Right? We were not to mm-hmm. see that. No one was to talk about it. Um, and that included Arthur Miller. So um, Daniel was put into an institution and his wife tried to bring him home as a toddler, but was never able to do so. Um, so I thought that that was really interesting. Uh, and really sad. But this is another interesting fact. Um, the actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, marries Rebecca Miller. 
Oh. Right? Oh. Um, I know. And um, Daniel Day-Lewis eventually persuades Arthur Miller to make contact with Daniel as an adult son, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and most of the public doesn't know that this is occurring until after Arthur Miller dies. So there's this whole family controversy that's occurring, um, and I think really fraught familial relationships that that's happening. Yes. Um, and that in and of itself is a play. Right? Like, that sounds like some Eugene O'Neill yeah. situation up in mm-hmm. here. Um, so... Arthur Miller also writes a couple other plays that, again, pretty much to a lot of acclaim, A View from the Bridge, which is which pretty I popular. Which I saw when mm-hmm. it was at the Goodman. 1955. Um, incident at Vin- Vici? Vici? Vici. In 1964. The Prince in 68. The Creation of the World and Other Business in 72. <laughs> the American Clock in 80. Broken Glass in 1994. In 1980, he also writes a TV movie playing for time. Um, and then adapts it to the theater. So I thought that was interesting. Um, this I picked out as an interesting detail because it's actually based on the autobiography um, of a Holocaust survivor, um, Fania Fenelon, who was a member of an all-women's orchestra. And the whole orchestra was imprisoned at Auschwitz during the Holocaust. And so this is that story. And I thought that was wow. really amazing. Like, I really want to see it um, and read it. But like playing for time... Playing for time. Right? Oh my gosh. I know. So anywho, um, Arthur Miller collaborates with his wife um, on a bunch of different books, which I thought was neat. So she was doing photography. He was doing the text. Um, and then in 1987, Arthur Miller publishes his own autobiography that he called Time Bends a Life. Ooh. Time Bends is one word, by Got the way. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but whatever. Um, So in this autobiography, he writes about um, his upbringing and all kinds of things and stresses um, that writing is, and specifically writing a worthy play, was one of the most important things a human being could do. Um, Which honestly, for as controversial as his life was as I was researching it, I thought was a very apt quote. Um, One of my students, one of my sophomores this year, we've gotten into sort of regular spats in class about the value of poetry. And I think the value of art, the value of plays falls into this category. Um, And I think I quoted this last time, the death of, or the Dead Poet Society quote. Um, Engineering is what we, like, keeps us alive, but art is what's worth staying alive for. Mm. Something along those lines. Um, I think this is reminiscent of that quote. So let's bring together more weird ties of life. Yes, please. In 1996, um, The Crucible gets adapted to the film, um, and it stars Winona Ryder, Joan Allen, and Daniel Day-Lewis. So Daniel Day-Lewis gets to play John Proctor and is married to the wife of the playwright. Sorry, is married to the daughter of the playwright, Arthur Miller. So I thought that was cool because Arthur Miller also writes the screenplay. And then he gets nominated for an Academy Award. Doesn't win, but gets nominated. So he's gotten nominated for an Academy Award. He has a Drama Desk Critic Award. He has a Pulitzer Prize. He has a bunch of Tony Awards. What? Annoying. So, (laughs) like, I just... It's, again, one of those things, like, can we separate the art from the artist type situation? And in when, in when is that appropriate? 
Um, so he goes on, obviously con continuing to do work through the rest of his life in a bunch of different capacities. Um, in 2002, his third wife has died, right? So um, his photographer wife died. Mm -hmm. However, don't worry. He's not lonely for long because soon after... He's he... incapable of being alone. Yes. I don't know anyone else like that, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, good. Okay. So um, he gets engaged to a 34-year-old minimalist painter named Agnes Barley. But unfortunately, he gets too sick, so they can't get married. Poor guy. I feel bad laughing about this, but like, bro. Oh, man. So bizarre. 34 years old. Yeah. Not to be like rude about age differences because like fine but literally he's 86 years old at this time and he's getting engaged to a 34 year old they just love each other Stephanie okay fine um, so uh, 56 years after Death of a Salesman's Broadway debut on February 10th in 2005 Arthur Miller dies of heart failure um, in his home, surrounded by his family and friends, and he's 89 years old at mm. this time. And that is the wild, weird, yes, strangely connected life of Arthur Miller. And there's and the author of The Crucible, which mm. is freaking bats. I think everyone should have to read The Crucible. You don't have to say about that, Stephanie. No, I'm waiting. I know, I was waiting for you to answer. Oh, Giles Corey no. has the best line in the entire Crucible. Did you know? What? <laughs> he doesn't actually have that line. I know. It's in the movie only. No, but like someone else says what his last line is, right? right? But he doesn't actually get to say it, which I thought it did. But even in like real life, so there's this man who's also accused of witchcraft during the Salem mm -hmm. witch trials, and they condemn him to death by being pressed by stones. Stones. So when they ask him like what he has to say for himself, Stephanie, what does he say for himself? Wait. And it's his last words. And then he dies. If that's not like a... If that's not like a... Big middle finger up to everybody who's Thank trying you. to get him. Like, I yes. don't know what it is. I was trying to think of a radio-appropriate way to say that, Stephanie. <laughs> I would have believed it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, so I I don't know. I just, I find The Crucible to be captivating. I find the film version to be amazing. Um, and I would highly recommend that people take a look, listen, watch to it at some point in time in their lives. Because, um, I don't know, I just think it captures the hysteria of a moment and what occurs when we stop listening to one another and really just start assuming things. Um, I find that to be secularly relevant in today's society. Um, so to go back and revisit, I think is very important right. to kind of see what happens. Um, so there's that. Yeah. But anyway, witches, am I right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, we love a good witch. And we will get into more ghosts and hauntings and things like that come Christmas. So mm -hmm. don't worry if this episode was thrilling to you. Uh, we will have much more where that came from when we hit up one Charles Dickens in a couple weeks. Just in time for Christmas. So thank you so much for listening, for all of your support. It's been really fun to see the Spotify updates that people have been getting and how many people were on the like top five year in review playlist for <laughs> you know Spotify podcast. Uh, so thank you for sending those along. That was really fun to see. Um, and we're looking forward to hopefully keeping our, keeping our ranks up there in the next year. 
with more episodes to come. So thanks for your support, for engaging with us, and for always keeping it lit. There's one.